In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The kingdom of God is substantially new. The old world cannot contain it. It changes everything it touches. The old structures of thought and existence are not adequate to hold it. They break when it is poured into them. Paul Zoll's reflection finds its place in today's texts, even though it is properly speaking a commentary on Matthew 9, 14 to 17. Since that particular passage, however, does not appear at all in lectionary year A, I take the liberty of appending it to the front end of the readings we have already heard. Then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This text is one key, at least, to today's passages, which are susceptible to a little unpicking of the lock which binds them just to get to the heart of what Jesus is saying because he is making very strong statements here and in the text that we heard about the continuity, if you like, between the testaments, between the dispensations, between what came before and him. It's about the continuity specifically between Jesus and John the Baptist. And there is more discontinuity to deal with between those two than there is continuity. And indeed, it is the discontinuity that is the key to the whole Christian project. It's not what Christianity holds in common with other ways of looking at the world. It's the differences that define us. If this were just about a faithful Israelite, finally reading the text he had on hand and getting it right, then the whole extraordinary life and witness of Jesus would not be needed, and much fuss could have been avoided. We started in Matthew 11 with John in prison, hearing about Jesus and asking the perennial question. John sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is where John the Baptist is in prison. He's still thinking, has the Messiah come? Maybe Jesus was not the one. John, the one who kicks in the womb when Mary comes near, nears the end of his life in doubt, radical doubt. The one he foresaw, he did not foreknow, evidently. There is nothing in his repertoire of paradigms to match up with Jesus and say, this fits what I had in mind. 
He dies at the hands of Herod's executioner, not only not knowing, but having apparently bequeathed the same agnosticism to his own disciples. Now we celebrate John. We celebrate him as a prophet and a saint with one foot in each dispensation. I'm not a dispensationalist, but that's the best term for it. But in fact, he belongs in neither. He simply doesn't get it. Hence Jesus' cryptic remark, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is or is or no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When the revelation of Jesus finally hits, arguably not until the day of Pentecost, one discovers that something new has really happened, so new that it sets everything that went before in a radically new relationship to itself and to it. Now, why doesn't John get it? What is missing in his interpretive scheme? What significant characteristic does Jesus possess that he doesn't, nor anyone else around him? Faithfulness? No, that he has. There is no one greater, as Jesus says. Here is your faithful Israelite, if you like, right there, John the Baptist. But John misses it, just by a centimeter, but that's enough to shoot right past the orbit of this new world. John's world is too small, that's all. Like an old wineskin or a worn-out garment, the structure will rupture when it is put to use, to its proper use, when the container that John has made for the Messiah's revelation is actually presented with the content, the Messiah himself, it simply falls apart. All, how does a structure become unfit? Excuse me, we'll go with structures. The structure will rupture. How does a structure become unfit? How does a structure become unable to meet the load placed upon it, the demands, if you like? Either because it's too small by volume or too weak in terms of strength, or too flexible or not flexible enough in terms of the way the members are put together. All of these define John's understanding of Messiah, the anointed one who is to come, and his task, what it is and how he will do it. They, John, and those around him are working with a structure, a container, for the vocation that God has given Israel from the beginning in Abraham. They've got texts, but they don't have all the right texts at hand, and the ones they have, they don't get right. They see the kingdom of God within a frame of reference that has been shaped by power, a shaped by their experience of worldly kingdoms and the strategies that the world uses to create any kind of community at all, from the level of the family to the clan to the tribe, whether in the city or the countryside. Social structures, political structures, they are all based on the use of power to enforce loyalty. That's Mary Douglas's definition, but I like it very much. They're based on the use of power to enforce their values one way or the other in those who are part of that community. Structures developed ad hoc, if you like, on the fly to deal with pressing problems, co-opting biblical texts, but then putting them to use as strategies to be practiced and put into practice when necessary. Old wineskins, old garments, and as they become more and more constraining, constricting, 
imprisoning applied to situations which as time goes on diverge more and more from the conditions which brought them forth. Their application becomes more brittle and more fragile. The structures cannot hold. <coughs> Think of those strategies, for instance, not just in the great battles in which new technologies made mincemeat, literally, of hallowed theories of the art of war. But think of the battles for life that each of us fight, first with our parents and our siblings, as we seek to match our sense of divine calling with the unconscious conditions and hidden agendas and expectations which our family of origin sought to prepare for us when we were in the womb even as a web to help us protect, to be protected from a fierce and frightening world, but which inhibit our ability to deal with the world on our own terms. Complexes, we call them, when our very existence is challenged in some way and we react, fight, flight, or freeze, as every family will do when siblings one by one accept or reject the call to live out the unlived lives of the parents, fraught as they are with hopes and fears, wrought out of failures and frustration. So Judea was made up of a mosaic of collectives, all chafing at the weight of Roman rule, all using scripture to inspire them and buttress them up, but expressing their animosity in different ways. First expressing their fear, which led to collusion, collaborating with the enemy as the chief priests and scribes and the whole network of local governors do, for then expressing collision, fight if you like, those who at various times gathered together into open rebellion and rose up and went on the attack and ended up impaled on crucifixes lining the road into Jerusalem, and circumvention, freezing, those who bolted for freedom made themselves invisible in the countryside and relished their anonymity, fight, flight, and freeze, all claiming the right to use the sacred texts to justify their collective identity, all using the same texts but drawing different conclusions from them and devising from their initial deployment the same strategies as time went on again and again as a divided kingdom yielded to wave after wave after wave of invasion by foreign powers, all united in awaiting their deliverance and all looking in different ways and in different places for that deliverance to come. The quite wonderful graphic that Brad Cathy prepared for today sets this up. The three amber lights, and I want, love the way he's made that traffic light, that electrical fixture, look like a piece of military equipment, at least to me. Three amber lights saying to those waiting for direction, fight, flight, freeze, just wait here, no going forward, no going back, no escape, wait in the wilderness, wait in liminal space, wait in the place you are where nothing can grow, where life cannot be supported. You started in a garden, but as the millennium went on, you saw the garden shrivel and become a desert. But the apostle says, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The precious fruit of the earth 
will spring forth. The winter rains and the spring rains will water the desert. All the burned over places which have been itemized in Isaiah 34 will find their comeuppance now in Israel's revival. Well, that's how things work out on the national scene. What is it like with us too when we grow? What's it like at the individual level? Because my thesis is it's all the same. And collective grows from the individual. Everything grows from the individual and God. And the individual then negotiating with every level of social constraint and structure for his or her own very survival. When we have to grow, how do we do it? How do we grow up? How do we grow out of the stories we grew up with as we must? As James Hollis remarks, we can get stuck in our stories, the stories we've been serving that are no longer worthy of the soul's intent. In those moments, we realize that another story, perhaps, is wishing to be born through us. Another story, perhaps, is wishing to be born through us. Hollis says, we don't get up every morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid things I've done every day in my life up to now, and maybe hope that they're going to turn out different than they have, and they do not. We, none of us get up doing that. But we struggle until the stories we have rehearsed to survive finally are exhausted in our lives, finally no longer produce the results that we hope they will produce. What do we do then? If we're blessed, God will take us into the wilderness and say, come here. This is where growth happens. It will take patience. It will take courage. And it will take us, first of all, to the place where we surrender, where we're willing to die like a caterpillar wound up tight in its cocoon, waiting to reborn as the butterfly that will break through its shell like a web of tangled threads will take wing and soar. The biblical model of growth is not just accumulation of wisdom, a staircase to heaven. It's the pastoral model, model rather, of death and resurrection. The model of Abraham, where if you want something from God, you better be ready to give everything you have back. You hand it back to him, you surrender everything, you start with nothing, and you see where it goes. God doesn't work too much in any other way. That's the gospel, and that's the good news that will do that. The paschal mystery of death and resurrection. It's the Good Friday story. Now, this is Advent, but you remember you're in all souls where every Sunday is Good Friday. And the message of Good Friday is the wilderness. As Luther said, we repent every day of our lives. That's what coming to faith in Jesus Christ means. You get to live every day of your life in repentance. Because it's repentance that frees us, that gives us the freedom we need to take on and to take in the new life of the Spirit that Jesus offers. How do we do that in our wilderness? Well, first we have to take our own texts in hand and ask if we're reading them right. Not just the scenarios that we built as reactive strategies to get us through our adolescence, but the very biblical texts that we were given as children. 
and the fact that we are surely reading some of those same texts a lot differently than we read them when we were children. I hope so, because that's how they work. We have to take our own tasks in hand and ask if we're reading them right, or are they too encrusted in a sticky web, woven in collusion with the cultural forces that may bind us together, but bind us up in the end and constrain our capacity to grasp the message of the kingdom, break from the provisional contingencies of culture to the eternal necessities that really offer us our truth, our life, our way, our Lord. My prayer is that we will live long enough this side of glory to get the taste of a little bit of that freedom at least. It's a radical vision, though, that we're called to. And to see that, you have to look at the Magnificat, which we took as a canticle today. This is the response, if you please, of the Virgin Mary, that teenager, to the invitation that the Lord gives her. And it's a vision of the entire world turned upside down. This is a little Greta Thunberg, if you like, in the making. And her vision, rather larger, is still global in its in, in, its, in its vision. It's a vision for all of creation, and it's pretty stern in challenging, confronting those who thought they were doing a pretty good job of taking care of it. Mary is saying, you haven't even begun. Again, you don't get it. A new way of seeing this is coming. That's all I know. And Jesus will demand nothing less that we take our social structures and turn them upside down and maybe look at what we might have done to glue our social structures and our spiritual structures together. So, our time in the wilderness does this. It disrupts our attachments to the things that define reality for us and imprison us in so doing, shows us how provisional they are, and allows us to begin and begin and to begin again to discern the eternal truth to which God in Christ is calling us. A truth so much greater, grander, and more spacious than we can imagine, yet at the same time so uniquely personal. We each get our call from the Lord, and we each look for the courage to live it out. It also takes a personal willingness, a readiness to let go, to surrender into the new life of the new creation, to learn how little we really need and yet how much we are able to give to meet the needs of others. So my prayer is this, Lord Jesus, help us, especially in this season of waiting, to let go and to be ready to receive so much more of what you in your grace have in mind, have in store for each of us. Amen.